0: engineering and support for Laird Uh, joining me today uh, in studio is Jennifer
1: hi uh, this is Jennifer Gibbs uh, field applications engineer at Laird
0: and Colin how's everybody doing
2: Colin Halliday strategic business development manager for test services
0: So today we are going to talk about test services, certifications, uh, you know, anything of the like around that. So Colin, why don't you give me just a brief overview of what uh, test engineering services entails and certifications?
2: Yeah, sure. So I help customers when they come out with a product, there's certain requirements for shipping it around the world, United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and internationally. Uh, I'll work with a customer, uh, develop a test plan, understand their product, uh, determine the requirements that they're going to need to fulfill to be able to sell their product, uh, and then provide a quotation. Uh, After that, I hand it off to our operations team. Uh, We've got designated project engineers that will run the project. Uh, internally. We'll do all sorts of different testing here in Cedarburg. We'll do uh, FCC testing, ISCD testing, Etsy, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Then after that uh, we'll continue the process and we can help internationally as well.
0: What kind of things do I need to take uh, into consideration as I'm doing the design?
2: So from a product development standpoint, there's really three paths from a a regulatory uh, approach. So the first path uh, is leveraging a modular certification. Uh, That's basically when uh, a development team will select a module, uh, FCC-certified module, that other companies have developed. So layered connectivity, of course, and many others have come up with uh, modules that will be incorporated into a product. All the certifications have been done ahead of time, and then the end user can basically just reuse that uh, for their product and release Uh, the next path is uh, maybe using a module but there's a special application where it's a different antenna or there's a different uh, enclosure requirement you might need to do something different uh, there's kind of a middle ground there. So you'll leverage the modular grant, but there'll be some special steps that you have to do filing with the FCC uh, with the new new decision points that you've made. Then the last path is basically uh, chip-down design. So there's no leveraging of any certifications. Uh, it's a ground-up development, and then the whole product uh, would be certified.
1: What different things can you, you, can you do, Colin, to break the certifications on a module, or to cause you to have to do additional testing above and beyond the certifications that are already on the module?
2: Yeah, good question. So anytime you want to leverage a modular grant, there's three key things that you need to do. The first one uh, is related to output power so the when the modules originally tested there was a firmware boot file and there's different flavors depending on if it's Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or different technologies but there'll be a, a file with a power table in it uh, that the manufacturer will have to provide to you that you'll have to have inside of your device so that it stays at the same levels uh, of output power on specific channels. So if you change that at all, you'll have to go through a certain process.
1: I think there's a misnomer I learned just recently that um, not only raising the power requires additional testing, but also if you are lowering the overall power to a, a level below what is listed in the data sheet requires testing as well.
2: Right. Exactly. So there's a, a spec by the FCC that if you raise it or lower it by a certain tolerance, there's uh, it can be a full recertification or it could be a class two permissive change depending on the, the situation. Um, so the, the power tables is the first step. The second step is uh, an antenna. So there's a list of antennas in certification uh, test reports. Uh, you have to use one of those equal or lesser gain antennas, the same topology. Uh, and then also the last one is for any off board or off module antennas uh, there's a specific reference design that needs to be followed so the trace length width dimensions uh, even the thickness of the board all needs to be followed uh, if you break any of those uh, same same kind of consequence so you have to do a class two permissive change to add the new uh, call it antenna into the grant uh, the fcc for example looks at everything from the pin where the on the edge of the module going to the antenna as the antenna so that includes the trace any kind connectors in that path all the way through the actual radiating element the antenna
0: so you'd mentioned something in there um class two permissive change can you describe the difference between the permissive changes
2: Sure, yeah, there's so there's really three there's uh, class one, class two, class three. Uh, Lots of good documentation online that goes into way more depth than I think we have time here. Uh, But just from a high level, uh, the class one permissive change is something like a form fit uh, function component change. Maybe there is an end of life by one uh, antenna manufacturer using as you know similar antenna or uh, uh, component on the board maybe a PA that's a different manufacturer but all the same characteristics uh, that's uh, doesn't require any filing with the FCC uh, a lot of times you'll have to do some testing, uh, maybe some spot check testing to make sure that it's exactly the same. Uh, But then you keep that test report and documentation on hand and actually file that with the FCC. Uh, Class two uh, is any major change, right? So any antenna that might be a different topology, uh, different gain, uh, changing the power tables, things like that, uh, that would require testing and then filing um, with the FCC. And then you would have a change, an amendment uh, to the grant of authorization. And then the third is basically a full recertification. In my experience, I haven't seen any customers uh, really go down that path. The only benefit there is basically keeping the same FCC ID, but it's essentially all new test data that just gets submitted into the grant. But in most cases, customers will uh, retest and then come up with a new FCC ID, a new grant completely separate. Okay.
0: Let's say I designed my, my board and... I need an extra five inches. Does that nullify the certification that I got from, you know, said radio and antenna vendor? Or what do I need to do for that? Do you mean in the layout or do you mean in the antenna cable? In the antenna cable. So, sure. you know, I, I my antenna had a 100 meter or 100 millimeter cable and I need 120.
2: Yeah. So, uh, in general, longer is fine. Uh, shorter is got consequences, right? That's most likely a class two, uh, sometimes a class one, depending on what the test results show when we do the spot checks, uh, to see what the differences are in performance between the original antenna cable length and the new antenna cable length. Uh, the real simple thing, right? All the, all the things that we've talked about here, uh, from a concern from an FCC standpoint for breaking the grant care about overall output power. Are you doing anything to change the performance of it? So if you're reducing the cable length, right? It reduces the Uh, the loss against the cable and it'll increase the output power slightly right increase the performance of it slightly so same thing with the power tables as well as the trace layout on the on the pcb anything that will change the the performance and output power of the the antenna that's the concern that's a real quick if you're debating on if it's going to affect it or not that's a real quick way to make a determination
1: and they can also contact us here at Laird, and we'll we'll help them out. Shameless we'll plug. We'll help them to do that. <laughs> we'll do a shameless, shameless plug, plug. No worries.
0: Um, so, I've I've heard the term pre scan and full scan. What's what's the difference between those two?
2: Nice. So this uh,
0: is—it's
2: kind of a tricky situation, right? Because technically, a pre-scan is a full scan. uh, If you want to get to the nuts and bolts of it, right? We're going to set it up in the same orientations. We're going to do the same test modes. uh, We're going to have the same test modes that are going to be required. Um, It's usually just abbreviated, and what it does is it ensures confidence down the road. So if I'm gonna set up a regulatory plan for a customer, uh, say it's a simple Bluetooth chip-down device, um, what we'll do is maybe a few-day pre-scan, maybe a two-day pre-scan early in the project. That'll give the design team heads up as, how does this look? Is there emission issues? Is there, uh, maybe there's concerns about power shaping the device uh, for regulatory. There's uh, performance questions, right? We'll see if there's uh, maybe an issue with the antenna performance, um, that, that'll be basically an abbreviated uh, version of the final testing. And then uh, final testing, right, what you're kind of hinting at, that is uh, everything needs to be ready, right? So we'll need the enclosures. We'll need all the appropriate test modes. Uh, we're going to document everything as we get it, uh, create test reports, and then filing and submission uh, to the FCC. So that's you know kind of
0: the real show at that point. So does every device need to be tested or what what defines if i can get away with testing or if i don't have to test
2: yes so good question uh everyone seems to be looking for an exemption that's always a fun conversation uh in general, yes. Every device that has digital electronics requires a general emission test. Uh, if it has connection to AC mains, there's additional conducted testing that's required. Uh, every device that incorporates a module requires not only the general emissions testing, but also uh, transmitter spurious testing. That was a change last year uh, in the FCC. Uh, I didn't it, know that. That's it, good to know. It used to be. Uh, it used to be that you could just put a module in a product and do general emissions, but. Now, uh, you need to do some transmitter testing. Uh, that's, it's not a major concern. It's not like we see a lot of failures from that. Uh, the bigger concern for a user is test modes. So you'll need to have uh, capability to put it in all of the regulatory test modes. So constant transmit, constant receive, low, mid, and high channel, high duty cycle. Uh, that's a requirement that most folks that integrate modules are not prepared for.
0: And so let's say I have a a device that's got, you know, a LoRa radio, two Bluetooth radios, four Wi-Fi radios, and a proprietary 400 megahertz radio. Um, Can I... Do I have to test them all at once? Can I just do one at a time? How does, how does that all work? Good question. Well, probably need a
2: big bucket of aspirin because that's a ridiculous product and I bet you have a lot of headaches. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so in general, uh, any product that's leveraging, you know, maybe there's a, a couple of those, we'll just call a couple of them modules. Uh, we'll do the transmitter spurious testing on them. Uh, if there's a chip down, uh, design in it. We'll have to do the full testing on it, and then any of the radios that can transmit at the same time, uh, we'll have to do what's called simultaneous transmission testing. Uh, so the short version of that is, we'll look at say there's a Bluetooth, a lora and a Wi-Fi radio. Uh, we'll take all three of those. Uh, low, mid, high channel, and then make a matrix of different combinations of them. Uh, and then what we're looking for there is any issues with harmonics or band edge where in combination, uh, they might be breaking the rules uh, from an FCC
0: standpoint. So one thing today, we, you and I were out visiting customers and, you know... Generally having fun with with people, and one of the things that you had mentioned today was that if my application has twenty different variants and each variant has a different name, then I have to test each one differently. But if I have twenty different variants and they all come from, you know, say Project Alpha, I only need to test one. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, yeah,
1: the difference between family and product, I guess.
0: Yeah.
2: So. I'm going to click up the lens a couple notches on this. Uh, instead of being very specific about that example, I think it's just important to note that different regulatory uh, parts or different regulatory um, associations throughout the world have different rules, right? So the U.S., for example, if you did that modular cert and then you put it in 10 or 15 different products, uh, you are supposed to do the transmitter spurious in each end product. Um, you'll need to do the general emissions test in each end product. Uh, for Canada, for example, if we did a, a modular cert with a number of end products they do things like a family uh, like a family certification a product family certification um for other parts of the world they they don't necessarily care every single end product is an end product doesn't matter if you have a module or if it's a chip down design in each one every end product is an end product so the message here is early on in the project come up with a family scheme for model numbering uh, for part numbering, uh, and then a regulatory plan around that. Uh, I've had a couple of customers now where they're they're deep deep into the design process, having a number of different end products, and I'm having conversations with them about relabeling relabeling all their products in a fashion to be able to leverage the test data between them to go into certain countries and that is not a conversation you want to have when you are way down the way down the path you want to have that conversation very
0: early early on so that's actually a good point then how in my design life cycle how, when should I start thinking of doing certifications and when should I reach out to you know, my, my chosen certification lab to get the process started?
2: Yeah, another good question. So uh, I was actually at a customer last week. Uh, hopefully, they can't figure out who that was based on the release of this. But uh, so I was at a customer last week and they are still in the concept phase. Uh, they're block diagramming their design, uh, determining if they want to have one module versus two modules what antennas they're going to select. Uh, They're still, you know, I'd say early uh, system architecture, maybe some uh, schematic layout, some, just bits and pieces of the design. Uh, and we're, we're having conversations with them saying, if you know if you do two modules, you're going to have to consider simultaneous transmission testing. You're going to have to consider labeling requirements now. It's going to have to be twice as big of a label because of the, the FCC IDs for both of them need to be on it, things like that. Uh, and that kind of pushes them to say, well, maybe we should find a, a dual-mode module Uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, and that'll save us a headache down the road. And then, oh, by the way, this is the size of the enclosure. Okay, well, you might have to have a different antenna. So... Going through the whole class two permissive change process with them really changed their mind about trying to use an off the shelf antenna uh, that fits the requirements from the modular certification. So lots of little things can make big regulatory effects down the road if you do that up front early in the maybe system architecture stage. That that is probably the best.
0: Okay.
1: So I think we've talked a lot about um, FCC. Um, what um, similar testing is there for CE for final end product?
2: yeah okay so that's a whole nother animal uh (laughs) we could spend probably a couple hours just talking about that uh let's zoom out again uh FCC, the United States and Canada, right, ISCD in Canada, they only care about emissions. They care about the noise coming off of your product, either radiated to other products or conducted into AC mains, where Europe requires not only emissions testing, but immunity testing. So that is, if there's a product next to yours uh, that might not be you know, in compliance, how is your product going to react? So Europe requires a whole slew of tests uh, if you want to plug into AC. Mains, uh, but also if you don't from a uh, just a radiated standpoint, a uh, standalone battery operated product would have to go through things like radiated immunity, ESD, uh, more uh, immunity based tests, not just emissions based tests. Uh, from a AC mains test standpoint, you're looking at things like surge, burst, uh, VDI, harmonics, flicker, uh, depending on the application that you have and how you ship your device. So it has a power supply in it or multiple power supplies in it. It can get very uh, expensive and uh, you know more difficult, let's just
1: say more difficult. I can definitely see the purpose of, of coming up with a plan early on in the design cycle um, because there are many things that will affect the end result.
0: Absolutely. So. Now, I, I know there are... at least three countries that require in-country where you you physically have to send the device and test it in. Most other countries allow you to do it in your country of manufacture or country of test. Um, Are there more than three? Yeah, so it seems to be
2: changing by the day, (laughs) which is hard to keep up with it. Uh, Maybe just let's talk about countries in general. So the three main ways to ship your product internationally. A lot of countries will leverage the U.S. and European Test data. Uh, so they'll just take that and you're quote unquote, you know, basically good to go. Uh, the second one is where they might take that test data, uh, but they require a special test report, uh, some kind of quite possibly safety testing, uh, or other additional. Testing that they require specifically, and then the last one is what you were kind of hinting at: the uh, in-country testing. So, in-country testing is uh, you have to ship your product to that country. They do all the testing at one of their local labs, and then uh, you get the stamp of approval. You'll ship your product into that country. Uh, They do that mostly for, right, from an economy standpoint. They're just looking for the the dollars to be in the local economy. Uh, A lot of those countries leverage. Test standards from U.S., Europe, you know, more uh, more consistently than just one-off random testing. Uh, everybody, though, in all three of those. And all three of those processes, uh, everyone's looking for money. So it's, it's everybody wants some kind of cost associated with it. It might be $500, it might be a couple thousand dollars, or it could be $50,000 right? if they want to do in-country testing. But every one of them has a cost associated with it, and then every one of them has a timeline associated with it. We've got a number of projects internationally that go boy 12 months 18 months i mean if we're looking at doing 100 countries on a country list for a medical product i mean it could take you know a year to get through all those wow that's based on you know some of the all the testing we can do in house right US Canada uh, Australia New Zealand Europe Japan we do that and then that takes call it 6 to 15 weeks somewhere in there then on top of that all the filing with the different countries each one has their own independent timeline and then from in country testing you have to take into consideration shipping customs physical testing bring up issues uh, start to finish filing right in their local government all this takes a significant amount of time
1: do they all need i know i've heard before um that they need like you need a local representative um and i think we've done it Historically, with Australia and New Zealand, um, is that the case with all of them, or can I just, as a customer, send my send my product to the local to some local test house in in that country?
2: Yeah. So a local rep is usually uh, someone that is designated as. Uh basically acting as the company locally. So that could be for recalls, it could be for, hey, we just want a phone number on this document in XYZ country to be able to contact. So instead of contacting Laird in the US, they're gonna contact John, who works for Laird in XYZ country. Not every country's like that, uh, and it, the good news is there's a lot of people out there that kind of just do that as a service. So oh. if we've got a company that uh, wants to ship their product internationally, we'll have a number of in-country reps, and that's basically a business. So for X dollars, they act on part of uh, your company. So that's something to take into consider- consideration for countries that requirement. Uh, not every country does though.
1: Okay, good to know.
0: So let's say I'm I'm ready to start considering certifications and I'm, I'm going to call Colin or I'm going to call whoever and say, OK, I'm ready. What information do you need ahead of time to make the process smoother? What, what helps out with that kind of information?
2: Yeah. OK, so. A lot of it, right? There's a lot of information. Uh, real basic information is good. Start out with a product description, right? What is the application? What is the use case? Uh, where do you plan to ship it? Is it just a local uh, a local disbursement, or is it going to go internationally? What is the plan overall? That's important to know because there's certain things we can do up front that might save us time and money later. Uh, also, requirements from a how is it powered? Is it battery-powered? Is it powered by AC mains? Are there different power supplies shipped with it, depending on if it goes internationally Uh, that's all important to know Uh, as well as does it have a radio in it a number of the projects we see now have a radio Uh, what are the uh, antennas that are being used so what are the manufacturer part numbers for radios manufacturer part numbers for antennas are you trying to leverage any certifications existing Um, are you trying to leverage certification with a different antenna now right the whole class tubermissive permissive change conversation we had earlier Uh, what is your uh, approach overall right that's you know what's the goal that's that's kind of the information that i'm looking for and then based on that you know it only takes a short time to review it and then provide a a regulatory plan around it and then a quotation right a formal quotation with dollars and timelines
0: now when it's time to go do the test um, do i need to send somebody there to to help you can i just send a document how does what how does all that kind of testing work yeah so
2: depending on the complexity of the product it's good to have someone on site Uh, it's not necessarily required but uh, Most of the time when customers are looking for ways to save money, stay on timeline, uh, maybe it's a a very critical project, you know, sending somebody for the first few days of testing is a good idea. Uh, Then we'll get the test modes, understand the modes of operation of the product for all the immunity testing we have to do, and then they can, you know, basically cut out after that. Uh, It's not, (laughs) most regulatory testing is not the most riveting thing to watch. Uh, So, you know, we'll get going on it, have the person on site, and then they can kind of cut out after that. Uh, We do a number of WebExes, though, right? Customers will come up with a a manual for how to put it in test modes. We'll do a WebEx with a customer that might not be able to attend locally uh, and then get the device up and running. That's, you know, it can go either way. Uh, And I think from a complexity and I've got a lot of customers too. this might be their first time going through it. They just want to see how the process works. So they'll come.
0: And you just have people that want to come to Cedarburg, Wisconsin.
2: Got to love yeah. Cedarburg, Wisconsin. There's a good plug for our, our local historic city. <laughs> it's right where you put every uh, you know RF engineering firm is in a 12,000-person historic city. <laughs> That's right.
1: And in a neighborhood to, to boot. <laughs>
2: yeah, <perfect. laughs> That's right. Uh, what about SAR testing? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So depending on the product, so SAR, uh, specific absorption rate testing, uh, I think we need to step back about maybe like three steps. if you have a wearable product, usually a wearable with uh, Wi-Fi or LoRa, anything that's of, call it average or average and higher output power, um, we'll do uh, what's called an RF exposure calculation. So that'll take into consideration uh, the separation distance between the radian element and then where it is on the human. There's different, uh, call it values and requirements for if it's head-worn or chest-worn or arm-worn. Uh, based on the separation distance between the radiant element, the human body, the duration, right, the duty cycle, and then the output power, we'll see if it passes the RF exposure limits provided by, and they're, They are somewhat different depending on the country, but in general, uh, if it passes the RF exposure limits. If it does, uh, you're good. If it doesn't, uh, you'll have to go to the next step, which is SAR testing. Uh, So that's uh, very specialized where you might have the, say it's a wearable for an arm, you'll have a phantom that you'll attach this uh, wearable to the arm, and then you'll measure the actual RF energy coming off of it into the phantom.
0: Interesting. Now, you had just wanted to reference, you had said Wi-Fi and LoRa specifically. Does that Bluetooth fall into that? You just kind of left that one out.
2: Yeah. So what we've seen, and this isn't, I mean, every application is different. You still need the RF exposure calculation for every application. But uh, most of the time, BLE is pretty safe. Bluetooth Classic, depending on the duty cycle, might need it. Uh, But you know, Wi-Fi and LoRa, Wi-Fi 5 gigahertz, things like that, we're seeing with higher duty rates, higher duty cycles require it, require SAR testing.
1: Colin, we've talked a lot about um, what is required for certification and the different types and everything. Um, Could you talk a little bit about um, what Laird offers and about our facilities?
2: Sure. So in... Uh, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. We have uh, a few chambers. We've got one fully anechoic uh, antenna chamber. It's got a we've outfitted with a Howland 3100 system. Uh, we'll basically do active and passive scans of smaller products or uh, antennas. So we'll do like an in-house development of an antenna. We'll prototype it. We'll put that in the chamber uh, and then see uh, a 3D uh, blob of test data, right? And we'll be able to check and uh, determine on where the you know if it's slightly directional or if we need to change certain things about it, uh, but we'll be able to produce a 3D uh, blob of antenna test data the second chamber we have, it's a three meter chamber. So inside that uh, we can do all sorts of different uh, equipment. We'll do things like tractors or large industrial control devices or we can do uh, maybe small vehicles. We've got fresh air, inlet and exhaust uh, as well as you know capturing uh, from a, a visibility standpoint we'll have a HD camera that we can monitor equipment. Our last chamber is a five meter chamber. It's an oversized five meter chamber. Technically an automotive chamber. Uh, we don't do automotive testing that's not something we've ever gotten into uh, but inside that again we've got the capability to run large industrial controls enclosures uh, small vehicles like a, a off-road vehicle or uh, like uh, motors motors and drives uh, small engines uh, we'll do same thing fresh air inlet exhaust inside that chamber as well it's on its own HVAC so we can have devices that get hot uh, maybe small generators or things like that uh, we also have a truck troubleshooting screen. So it's a projector uh, that's been taken into consideration for all of our all of our calibration on site. We'll project the different images and displays of analyzers in the control room and then we can real time troubleshoot instead of adjusting a cable, going back into the control room, uh, back out to the chamber, back in the control room, etc etc. Also, we've got an auxiliary chamber, or an auxiliary room, uh, on our five meter chamber. So that's useful for applications where there's some DUT that requires uh, ancillary equipment. So motor and a drive is the simplest example. So if you're testing a drive for conformity, you can't have a motor sitting next to it blasting off broadband noise. It would wash out all of your test data. So we'll run the motor in the auxiliary room, which has been outfitted to be RF quiet, and then we'll have the drive in the chamber, and we'll do the actual testing on that uh it's also been outfitted with steel reinforced concrete so we can run a a fork truck right into the chamber which is useful for larger equipment that isn't very mobile
1: how many tractors have we actually put into um into our chamber like weekly like big
2: do we oh not like uh so like lawn tractors okay not like yeah we do engines pretty much every week oh really yeah
0: Um, So let's say I'm designing my device and I'm trying to decide if I want to use a a chip down, a SIP, or a module. What, as far as certification ramifications, do I need to take into considerations? I mean, you can give me ballpark figures of anything, but what 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 makes me decide one over the other? So let's break that down a little bit, just to clarify it. So a chip
2: down is taking silicon from one of the big manufacturers and doing your own design. Mm -hmm. That's your own antenna, your own... uh full product certification or you might make your own module to go into multiple products. Uh, The second one that you said was a SIP. uh, So that can come in either fashion, right? That'll either be one of the big manufacturers of silicon uh, or it could be a module, a module by itself like our Sterling LWB. And then the third one you said was a full module. And I assume that means onboard antenna and very simple integrate. Right, onboard antenna or at least an onboard antenna connector. Got it. Okay. So, uh, We'll start with the easiest and work our way backwards. So, the module with uh, onboard antenna or onboard antenna connector. Uh, that's you know, very simple to integrate. So you'll put it on your design. Uh, you'll have to do the general emissions testing. Uh, you'll have to do the uh, transmitter spurious testing we talked about earlier. Uh, very straightforward. Let's just use uh, maybe Bluetooth. Low energy is you know just something to stay consistent with, and that's you know, where a lot of folks are going these days. Uh, something like that is a, uh, probably about a three-day, two-and-a-half, three-day exercise. Uh, so you'll do a day for uh, general emissions testing for the U.S and then a half day for uh, conducted emissions testing and then uh, a day for transmitter spurious. So for the second one, uh, if it's a SIP uh, that has a modular certification, it gets more complicated because you have to follow a reference design going out to an antenna connector or a reference design going out to uh, maybe a chip antenna or a trace antenna, things like that. Uh, That's more complicated from a design standpoint, but it still follows all the same uh, processes as the first example. So when you finish your implementation of the antenna, you'll have to do the transmitter spurious testing for a day, uh, general emissions FCC 109 testing for a day, and then the conducted testing uh, for about a half a day. Uh, the last one, right, so that's uh, a full design. So customer's going to put down their own silicon, uh, they're going to do their own uh, RF design, own antenna, or possibly, in, you know, maybe a off-the-shelf antenna. Something like that is, you know, more extravagant. Uh, for the first two instances, you know, I'd, I'd quite possibly recommend a short pre-scan. For this instance, I would definitely recommend a pre-scan. Uh, early on in the design, maybe a couple of them. Uh, the first pre-scan might uh, turn out that you need a call it a board rev and then changing something for some reason either emissions or from the, the RF design Uh, So one pre-scan, maybe for a day or two, another pre-scan for a day or two, and then full testing. So full testing would consist of conducted and radiated testing. Uh, It would be about four days or so, and then uh, you have to do the emissions testing after that. So try to make it real clear. Uh, Maybe a one-day pre-scan first, uh, an additional one-day pre-scan down the road. Four days of uh, intentional radiator testing gets you to, uh, what is that, six six days total. Uh, and then also uh, all the filing, right? So the first two instances, you don't have to do any filing with the FCC. In this case, you have to do the filing uh, where there's costs associated with that and timeline associated with that. Uh, the first two instances, uh, it's going to be something like uh, you know maybe a, a couple of days of testing and then call it 10 business days for a test report. And then you're good. Uh, in this case, the third case with the chip down, uh, the six days of testing, and then also uh, the filing. So, six days testing plus two weeks for test plan or for test report development, and then probably four to six weeks after that with filing with the FCC, going back and forth, answering questions, making adjustments to test reports, things like that. So overall, the process is probably eight weeks, six to eight weeks.
0: Now, let's say I wanted to go, you know, build my own antenna. Um, you know, not really pricing, but, you know, just say I wanted to use an antenna. Am I better to, you know, create my own or use a certified? And what are the ramifications of, of either one of those options?
2: Yeah, good question. So the, the antenna case, so let's, I'm just going to qualify a little bit, right, trying to make it real specific. Uh, pre-certified module onboard antenna connector using a different antenna than what was certified with it. Is that what you're kind of looking for? Yeah, pretty much that's, mm-hmm. yep. So uh, in that case, say you develop your own antenna or you buy a different antenna with a different topology uh, or a higher gain, uh, all those basically break the grant so you'll need to do a couple of things the first step is uh, depending on if it's uh, an antenna that maybe we'll just use layered as the as the manufacturer for this right shameless plug Uh, if you're using our module uh, it depends on the antenna that you're using if it's an off-the-shelf antenna that other customers might use uh, is a possibility that we'll add it to our grant if it's a off-the-shelf or a custom antenna that you're kind of the only customer that's going to use it likely will uh, have you create your own grant. So on that process, it's what they call a change of ID. We'll take all of our test data, uh, all of the information that we did when we originally filed it with the FCC, the module that is. We'll put it into the customer's name. Uh, once you have that, uh, we'll do antenna testing. So for Bluetooth, it's probably a two-day exercise. For Wi-Fi, it could be a couple more days. If it's you know a number of different technologies, right? it could be uh, more even then. Uh, after the antenna testing, we'll take that and we'll add it into your new grant, the customer's new grant, as uh, with a class two permissive change. That takes all that at test data, adds it to the new grant, and then now you've got a module in your name, with the appropriate antenna with it.
1: Um, let's say that my the module I want to use is certified with a uh, external dipole um, antenna, um, and it and the one that's on the grant is like a whip style um, dipole antenna. Mm-hmm. Can I replace that with a PCB dipole antenna?
2: So, qualify that a little bit. Whip antenna is.
1: Or rubber Terrible duck.
2: Name. It is <laughs> rubber thing. duck
1: or whip. But those are the only things I know to, to call them.
2: So I can I can tell you, there's definitely a couple antenna design engineers that cringe every time they see that term on a data sheet because it doesn't. It's not actually a topology, is it? A monopole? Is it a dipole? What is yeah. it? So uh, after arguing with you and finding mm-hmm. out what the antenna topology really is, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll look at that. And um, I totally forgot what you asked. Um, Completely forgot difference between two dipoles. Got it. Okay. So once we uh, review the data sheet and likely contact the manufacturer to find out what antenna it is or cut it open. We've been known to do that to determine if it's a monopole or a dipole. Uh, If it's a Different topology, so I shouldn't say topology here. So if you're claiming that it's the same topology, say it's a monopole whip and now you want to use a monopole PCB antenna, Mm -hmm. so that's not necessarily the same antenna. Even if it's the same gain and the same topology, in this case, every PCB trace antenna is kind of considered a different antenna uh, from the FCC's perspective. So uh, you could do some testing on it and try to determine if there's a small difference in the performance and the gain and things like that, but likely how it's going to shake out is it'll be a class two permissive change to add the antenna uh, either into our grant, or like I explained, uh, change of ID, class, uh, antenna testing, class two permissive change to add it into a new grant uh, for the
0: customer.
1: Okay. I think a good takeaway from that is definitely to ask your certification house um, (laughs) beforehand um, to make sure. Which
0: antenna you want, right. And that, I guess it ties in then. I've heard that if I have two antennas that are the same topology, um, but one is, equal to or lesser gain is that that what is what's the rule the actual ruling behind that yeah good question
2: so the specific uh, terminology from the KDB and there's lots of good lots of good information uh, on the FCC site in the KDB um, section. So it's uh, equal or lesser gain, same topology, and then um, similar in-band and out-of-band uh, antenna characteristics, uh, performance characteristics. So if you have two dipoles uh, that are same and same topology, same gain, uh, take a look at the data sheets, make sure there's nothing strange as far as in-band and out-of-band characteristics. After that assessment's done, you're basically good to use it. Uh, a lot of times though what i've seen is that you won't have that information that you need on the data sheets to confirm it so that's another way that you know layered or anybody else could help in that case uh, we'll put it in the chamber we'll put each antenna uh, in our antenna chamber characterize both of them have the actual data uh, then we can compare the two and make sure that they are form fit function uh the same
0: so i guess my last question to you is how do you keep up with all of this i mean you you've keep talking about kdb's and you know all this stuff from the fcc and all the other how all do you the, how the, do you they change so drastically
1: yeah. all the time
0: <laughs> yeah that's a That's a tough thing. So
2: I am just one of a team of folks that we have. I am by no means the best or the brightest expert. It's a team effort. So we've got folks here at Layered Connectivity on boards uh, for new standards that are coming out, for European standards, for uh, local government standards here in the U.S. Uh, We've got plenty of resources and databases that we use. It's really a day-by-day exercise and team-sharing information. You know, one of us might hear something or read an article, and then they share it with the group. The next person might do the same. Uh, it's you know, years and years of experience uh, within the team, and then as well as everyone's got their you know their ear to the ground, trying to determine what the changes are, and uh, what the ramifications of those changes will be. That's
0: that's kind of the trade-off. Well, I applaud you guys. There's no way I could. Spend that time keeping up with all that information. It's a ton to di- digest it's, all the it's time. It's like
1: being a lawyer, and I think it's it's all up to the interpretation. <laughs>
0: that, yep. We've run into that battle a few times.
1: Yeah.
2: Interpreting the standards is sometimes half yeah. the battle. Oh, man.
0: So let's say I had uh, you know other questions or anything like that. Do you have linked link to our website or your specific website that you could... Uh, point us to if I had any questions
2: yeah so we have uh, our own chunk of the website our own section uh, so at layered forward slash testing on that page we've got a number of goodies we've got some resources white papers uh, webinars we've done uh, we've got some good documents as far as how to prepare for uh, your regulatory testing um and then there's also an RFQ. So we've got an online interface. Uh, you know, it's a adaptive page that basically you fill out all the product information, what kind of testing you're looking for, and then that goes uh, directly to my team. So we'll review it,
0: uh, and then we can reach out to you soon after. And you got a video of the, uh, of the room, of the shield rooms, we right? Do, all the yeah. test chambers.
2: That is a good point. So a few years ago, we had a, a film crew come in, and we did a dollhouse of the lab. So I use this a lot with customers on the coast uh, that won't necessarily make it out by us. Uh, you can walk through our lab on our website, uh, using, uh, this video tool that, that we had come in and,
0: and do a, a tour of our lab. Oh, that's awesome. Um, thanks everyone for listening and we will, uh, be back soon with another hopefully useful podcast.